Hello and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, managing editor Bridget Silverman, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 16th, 2022, and we're going to start with a popular buzzword in the drug industry, real-world evidence. It seems like everyone wants to use it to get their drugs approved, ideally faster and cheaper than traditional methods. But Bridget, you found that the FDA is not necessarily making it a big part of approvals just yet. Well, it is to this point limited to uh, orphan drug settings, generally um, often orphan drugs where it's the first drug for a condition. Um, You know, so it's much more a matter of uh, because you can't get the data another way than a choice to uh, be creative with real world evidence. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what, what there is, 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 is a, a, a consistent, um, role as, uh, natural history studies, especially being used as external control arms in some of these settings. Um, and, uh, then even if you don't have a full matched real world evidence, you know, analysis with your external control arm, uh, that there's still, you know, often a role where, um, and and you saw this in in the review of Kosaluga, uh, for for example, where it, even if the data wasn't considered rigorous enough for an external control arm, it still provides important context about um, the natural history of the the condition. Um, one of the the things that we saw with in the the this the set of of orphan drug approvals was um the real importance of good registry data um it's i think no accident that three of the uh, approvals that we found have been in transplant settings because um there are you know very good long standing uh extensive comprehensive transplant registries um, so you, you, you're, you're starting there with with good data. Um, some uh, orphan disease uh, associations have also have had longstanding registries, like in, in Progeria, where um, that provided uh, data for the Zokinbi approval. Um, of course, you know, good data isn't enough. You also need to apply rigorous analytics to it. Um, and you really see a lot of the importance of making sure that if you're doing an external control arm, that uh, your patients are, are well matched with the, the uh, treated patients, um, that uh, missing data has been addressed, um, and missing data is a, a, a big problem with um, historical data sets where you don't have a control over what was collected, you know, five, six years ago. Um, and then you also see that FDA is very uh, interested in um, minimization of bias in these uh, these these analyses. Um, so that's really something you need to look at. Um, and uh, you know, right now there's there's sort of you know this this emerging regulatory infrastructure, um, lots and lots of projects and and guidances. Um, but I think it's interesting that. Uh, one of the the most important guidances to this point for the approvals um, may not be the explicit real world evidence guidances, but uh, FDA in uh, 2019 issued a draft on natural history studies in rare disease drug development. 
Um, and that's not directly focused entirely on external controls, uh, but I think that that is um, a, an element contributing to uh, how real world evidence is, has gotten hold in this one sort of small section of the drug development landscape. Yeah, I know having having been to my fair share of rare disease events, you know, the, this this issue has come up, like you said, it's it's been around for a while. Everyone wants to set up a natural history study. Everyone wants their natural history data to be you to be the control arm for the next big, you know, potential treatment that comes forward. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. <laughs> we all wish it was. Like yeah. you said, there's there's all kinds of problems with, you know, collecting the right kind of data and, and setting up the, the study so that it's, um, you know, so that the data is usable at the end of the day for regulatory purposes. But it's it, it, it's it's interesting that this is kind of the place where it's caught on. Um, do you think that it's going to do you think the real world data is going to end up kind of moving to whether it's out of the rare disease space and into some of the more traditional uh, you know, disease sectors, or maybe even out of the control arm space and into kind of, you know, the, the treatment arm type of spaces? You know, that 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 is the dream. Um, and, uh, you know, that is where um, uh, ProGraph, the, uh, was it, it's the lung transplant, um, approval is, I think, you know, sort of the closest we've seen to that, um, where, uh, again, you know, they were using uh, the U.S. Scientific Registry of uh, Transplant Recipients data, so, um, you know, a very well-established registry, um, and then they could supplement that with the Social Security Administration's death master file, um, which uh, anybody who's, who's covered a lot of real world evidence knows that uh, death is is one of the most difficult things to, to show. Um, yes, I have my own bones to pick with that, no pun intended. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, I, I, it, 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 it definitely, um, it, I think, is a hopeful sign there. Um, it's hard for me personally to really imagine it moving too far out of the rare disease space, um, just because it's uh, it's just it's not as good as a placebo control arm, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm not sure with some of more sort of common diseases. I, I almost wonder, and this is off the top of my head, but. Um, if it's more common, you know, are there well-established, rigorously conducted registries? Um, you know, the Progeria Foundation has a, a real incentive to uh, to invest in that. Um, you know, cystic fibrosis research has been, you know, heavily affected by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation um, and data that they've managed to to supervise the collection of. Um, you know, I'm not sure that uh, for for you know really prevalent diseases that necessarily that exists at this point and uh electronic health records you know i i for they've they've been been coming for 20 years and and they're still not great mm -hmm. um so you know we'll see uh you know i personally see this as mostly a orphan diseases um or such other situations where you really don't have another choice. 
it's Bridget, interesting what are your, oh, go ahead Derek. sorry i was going to say i you could you I, I wonder if you could see it happening in something like cancer where you know you you know you there where there's just so much research going on and there's so much data being generated and yeah it's not all going to be it may not always be you know um usable for regulatory purposes but you know especially if you're you know you're 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 testing treatments that are you know what? the existing treatment plus something else you would think that you'd be able to create his use historical data to create control arms like that you know the that's that's a really good point especially about um sort of collecting data in molecular subsets um you know that that'll be that will be interesting to watch um because yes i wonder if you could mind that and i apologize for the train well uh, another one of your stories in this uh, series looked at uh, upcoming uh, um or pending applications with you know potentially upcoming approvals uh, do you think uh, those products would uh, tell us anything new about uh, how fda is using the uh, the real world evidence that it's uh, that's is receiving um well you know there's there's few enough of these approvals that everyone gives you some good ideas um i'm definitely interested in what happens with uh the bluebird bios um the CAR-T therapy they call LSL. I'm not going to try to get the whole name out. <laughs> but uh, that that they um, have a pretty extensive use of an external control arm. And the uh, advisory committee back in June suggested that FDA may have had some issues with it. So um, I'm definitely interested in what happens with that. Um, also upcoming is... Um, Ipsin's uh, paloveratine uh, in, in patients with fibrodysplasia, Cificans progressiva, um, that uh, again also has a single arm trial compared to a natural history study. Um, there they've had, the company has had to establish um, sort of an endpoint of heterotopic ossification. Um, and I believe that the rear, uh, that the um, real world data has uh, helped in establishing that as an endpoint, even beyond or separate from the use of it as an external control. Um, and uh, then there's um, uh, also um, Okaliba uh, has their uh, PVC um, accelerated approval, or, or I'm sorry, their, uh, at any rate, intercept second indication is <laughs> has a fairly extensive use of uh, a retrospective uh, data as sort of a rescue operation after uh, some some challenges. Uh, so that will be interesting to see. Um, their their confirmatory trial had to be terminated terminated early because of lack of feasibility. So they're they're uh, trying to kind of rescue that. Yeah, that uh, seems to me like a uh, um, long promised. Uh... Uh, way to use uh, uh, real-world evidence was for kind of to uh, you know either you know conduct these confirmatory trials or expand indications once a, a product has kind of been rigorously evaluated uh, you know uh, before first market approval and uh, um, it uh, um, certainly uh, uh, as you've noted uh, hasn't turned out that way yet but uh, maybe the uh, the uh, the dam is breaking or uh, um, not that sort of kind of FDA is. Uh, firmly resisting these things, but uh, um, a better analogy of sort of kind of uh, 
um, the the the, you know, the 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 wind is catching or the the fire is sparking in terms of sort of uh, um, you know we're about to see a whole lot more of this stuff at these uh, if these uh, if these work out. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, and I think that you know we've seen for for a long time you know really a lot of investment in rare diseases. Um, and you know there's there's um, hopefully you know some of that is really going to be uh, coming um, to the fore with some of these more creative regulatory approaches. One of the um, <clears throat> one of the other things that I I noticed in your story was that a lot of these. Um, a lot of the sponsors had breakthrough designation and you know i'm i'm curious are we kind of i don't know if we're you know underestimating maybe the the value of the enhanced communication that comes with a breakthrough you know with breakthrough designation especially when you're trying to you know kind of, when you're trying to you know use an approach like this with real world evidence where yeah we have experience with it but it's not like the experience we have with the traditional you know kind of clinical program Absolutely. Um, you 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 uh, you see time and time again in in these reviews and in every FDA review, uh, you know the importance of talking to the agency early, making sure that the agency agrees with your trial design. Um, you know, especially if you're doing something kind of new, uh, you know, like like an external control arm, um, you know. Talk talk to the agency early, and you 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 have to think that that enhanced communication um, helps. And you know, to the extent that you can see it in uh, review documents, I I would say it does. That FDA has substantive comments early in the process that uh, you know help shape it into a, a study that FDA wants to see. Yeah, it's very interesting. This is a, this is a really interesting issue, and you know, it's one that's kind of like you know, like everyone's been saying, kind of. There's a whole lot of promise here and a lot of people see a lot of potential and, you know, it looks like we're kind of, you know, we're taking some steps, you know, kind of forward here. I don't know if you want to call them baby steps or not. They're they're probably adult steps, but um, yeah, it'll be. It'll be yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, it will be you know interesting to see, you know, kind of how they, you know, where we go from here. What's kind of the next uh, the next kind of iteration of this? Yep. Well, the next generation is uh, Bridget has two more uh, parts of this series uh, uh, just just now that'll uh, come out soon. So uh, look for those uh, um, in your uh, your pink sheet uh, email, and uh, um, I'm sure there's more reporting to come as uh, as developments progress. Next, we're going to look at the FDA's efforts to learn some lessons from the COVID nineteen pandemic. Sierra, you wrote an interesting piece about Cber wanting to use a more dry cleaner approach to communications. Sorry, that's funny to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I'm not. I'm not sure the dry cleaner metaphor um, resonates with me, but perhaps it resonates with other people. <laughs> but um, Peter Mark, sort of, um, you know, the head of Cber, described FDA's um, communications approach with companies during COVID, particularly the companies working on vaccines, as sort of akin to um, a dry cleaner, where questions were in by nine, out by five. Um, and just really, I mean, the idea he was trying to make was that they were able to answer company questions in real time to keep development moving. Um, unlike, you know, traditional FDA sponsor interaction, which kind of involves more formal scheduling of various types of meetings and so forth. Um, and he actually, I thought he, he really credited this with 
being one of the key reasons the vaccines got, you know, through the pivotal studies and approved so fast. He said it was really probably even more important than doing the um, at-risk manufacturing of the vaccines, which I thought was pretty significant. Um, and so the next obvious question is, okay, can you do more of this <laughs> um, and get other products, you know, where, you know, time is really of the essence to patients sooner? And, you know, he said, you know, the FDA is certainly thinking about this, but it's a struggle because they have staffing challenges. And we, I mean, we certainly know FDA was working at a different pace and hours and th they were working at pandemic sort of speed. They were not working normal business hours either. When he yeah. said nine to five, he might have meant in by, you know, questions were coming in at midnight and out at, you know, answers out at 4 a.m. You know, we know p people at FDA were working around the clock and in ways we can't necessarily expect them to work all the time. But the other thing is they just have lack of, you know, adequate staffing. They tend to be understaffed and have hiring challenges. And while what I thought was interesting here is while before Peter Marks has talked about the sort of virtual work environment as being helpful to FDA and being able to um, compete for employees and certainly compete for people who maybe don't want to move to the DC, Maryland, Virginia region. He also mentioned that, you know, they're starting to see some downsides of it, which is their good people can more easily get recruited away because they also may not have to move for their new job. <laughs> you know, he talked about they just have to switch which VPN they sign into. So, um, you know, his his thought process moving forward was if we want to, you know, change our way of communication and help sponsors in this way, we probably have to pilot it and then show there's some clear, you know, kind of quantitative benefit to people's health to time to market and so forth. And then you could go back to Congress or potentially like industry in the user-free context and get them to pay for it. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of things do sometimes seem to go back to staffing and money at FDA in terms of trying to kind of try out new things and get things done more efficiently. I, I have to say that I would be shocked if Seaver could figure out a way to consistently turn around answers to questions in a day or two and, and sustain it long term. I mean, it, I mean, especially when you have the they keep talking about this, the the bolus of cell and gene therapy applications that are coming. I mean, those aren't simple questions. I mean, those are incredibly, incredibly complicated things that they have to that potentially have to be answered. Yeah, I, I don't I mean, you know, all you know, all power to Peter Marks if he can figure out a way to do it, if he can staff get the staff to do it. Um, but yeah, I I mean, and the other the other thing is, can you do it? Could you do it in at somewhere like Cedar, which has a, a much higher volume of of issue of questions and and workload like than than compared to Cedar or Cber? Uh, you know, yeah, I don't it I don't know. It, it that seems like a tough one. A tough one well, to solve. And then I guess they'd have to figure out, you know, how to do this in sort of a fair manner of in terms of what applications, if they don't all get this, you know, sort of service, which applications get it and why and sort of how to triage that could be its own sort of, you know, problem <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and sort of could create, you know, again, you know, in fighting among different, you know, companies working on different disease areas or different patient populations. So, um, 
it's you know it's certainly an interesting thought and i think fda is thinking a lot about what worked um in COVID or what lessons from COVID they can apply but um it's it's always much easier when you just have one particular emergency situation you're focused on than you're then when you're thinking about changing you know the the habits of an entire sort of agency um, and drug approval process yeah i also think that uh, along with the fda working crazy hours uh you know sponsors of the COVID vaccines and uh therapeutics were also working very uh intensely during that period and so it's sort of uh um, you know, if FDA gears up to kind of get answers faster, they sort of may have to make sure that they're working with a uh, equally eager partner on that. Not that sort of sponsors just want to wait around, but sort of kind of, you know, every organization, be it, uh, you know, government or uh, or a, uh, a private business, or, you know, a, a public business, whatever the case may be, um, has, uh, um, uh, you know, has resource constraints. So they have to work about to worry about that. Um, also, a little entertained about the uh, your discussions here about sort of kind of how, uh, uh, FDA would design the uh, pilot. They're sort of now in the role of uh, being a sponsor themselves. They have to come up with a uh, a well-controlled trial, and then you know there's you know perhaps no guarantee at the end, even if they do this, that sort of kind of the the, uh, the authority in this case, uh, Congress will actually sort of kind of uh, you know give them approval to uh, to proceed with the uh, um, with the thing. Uh, um, you know, in terms of sort of kind of uh, um, not you know getting out of the market with the with the more resources, if you will. So. Uh, um, interesting to see how that uh, shakes out but uh, you know I don't think there's any question that's for kind of the more you talk to uh, um, FDA the uh, easier it is to uh, get your application through uh, as uh, Bridget was observing uh, um, in her uh, uh, rule of evidence uh, reporting you know, sort of these breakthrough designations do seem to sort of make a uh, um, make a difference in terms of being able to uh, you know talk more and uh, um, you know get uh, get more of the data in more of the uh, the shape that uh, people want to see it in so uh, um, you know, you can't uh, do a uh, um, an issue where only sort of some products that deserve breakthrough get it, and you can see sort of which ones go through faster. But uh, um, you know, it does. Uh, you know, at least from for kind of the, uh, um, the 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 pathways that we we can observe, it does seem to make a difference. Yeah, I think the um, when Mark was talking about pilots, one of the reasons he was trying to make the pitch for it is because he he felt like people don't like pilots; um, they just sort of want. I think the agency to just say, okay, this worked here, let's just pivot to that. And he just was saying, given the challenges of getting, you know, the funding and so forth to start something new in a wider sense, you just have to do pilots to really convince, um, you know, the people that kind of control that power of the purse that you can do this. Yeah. And we're also, you know, seeing, you know, this is kind of an, another another way that you know kind of the you know the we're seeing kind of the massive change in how people work too and you know the 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 fda is you know clearly changed with their you know mostly working from home or the the max telework flexibility and they're finding the employees like it you know and they're finding that there may be some trade-offs for that and um you know The same thing happened with the regular with regulatory processes that they put in place for the pandemic and sponsors are now figuring out that they like it, too. And, you know, the question is, what's the trade off going to be for that? And, you know, are they willing to necessarily make that trade to do it? And is the FDA willing to make that trade, you know, to to be able to to do that kind of thing? It's it's 
it's it's a tough it's a, it'll be a tough one to answer kind of you know or you know to see you know even to see if it works finally we're going to look at covid-19 vaccine adverse event reporting not the first topic that comes to mind when thinking about the vaccines but the fda made a significant change to requirements that went largely under the radar emergency use authorizations for the vaccines made by Pfizer and BioNTech as well as Moderna and Novavax now require that all myocarditis and pericarditis cases be reported. Now, if most of you out there are doing a double take, yes, we thought those cases, which are of serious concern to regulators, were being reported already. But it turns out some may not have met the definition of severe adverse event because the patients responded well to medication and saw prompt improvement. And so the FDA now seems to be worried about underreporting. Myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, has been a worry since it started appearing after the vaccines were deployed. And but even so, the SA the the SAE still seems to be extremely rare. Uh, the number of cases reported to the vaccine adverse event reporting system is in the thousands compared to the hundreds of millions of shots that have been given. And the ratios for all three vaccines included five zeros behind the decimal. And I was laughing because I had to remember how to use scientific notation because that's how the numbers were spit out on the calculator because they were so small. So for the panel, I, I'm curious on your take on this reporting change. This is another one of these like quiet safety changes that the FDA likes, it seems to be enjoying, you know, making. I, don't know, I just, I think this is an interesting situation because um, you know, without FDA needs good data, right? Without good data, it's hard to for people to make benefit risk calculations, right? Around um, you know, the safety and efficacy um benefit. And it seems like here maybe the way reporting was working, we weren't getting the best data. Um, and on the other hand, I think um this is the kind of thing that's very hard for FDA to talk about and communicate about because it gets um latched onto by people who are against vaccines and sort of maybe taken out of context. So it's kind of can be very hard for them to kind of communicate about these issues and um, what's known and unknown transparently without sort of, it, you know, diverting attention from the bottom line, which is still like the benefit risk calculus, even for, you know, many males in that sort of age range where the myocarditis risk from the vaccines is highest it's still you know that the the vaccine benefit is still um generally worth it um so i think that's kind of what's interesting here and then it just but if fda isn't like very transparent about what they're doing then it kind of looks like they're trying to cover something up and maybe that wasn't their intent here but it, it just plays into sort of some of these sentiments that the, you know from people who are hesitant about vaccines if they're not very transparent about what's going on that, yeah, that is the, uh, the 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 big uh, you know challenge for the agency is that uh, you know you don't want to you know uh, overemphasize what may or may not even be uh, adverse events that are related to the uh, the drug. Obviously, the you know the various reports don't uh, um, you know uh, don't necessarily mean that it was caused by uh, um, by the vaccine. So uh, um, yeah, and but on the other hand, you don't uh, um, want to uh, seem like you're covering it up. So that's a uh, um, uh, the 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 tone that FDA has taken since we're kind of the uh, the the Janssen uh, um, uh, pause at the beginning of the uh, um, the vaccine rollout uh, last year has been to kind of we're not going to really talk about safety and you know I don't know if that's the best call or uh, um, or not but they are uh, 
fairly uh, consistent about that uh, now in terms of kind of how they make their changes. Uh, you know, Derek actually uh, found another uh, uh, you know safety issue uh, earlier in the week uh, with a discussion of uh, you know imbalance on uh, uh, you know depression events uh, in the uh, Novavax uh, trial. And again, that was not something that was sort of kind of uh, in any way uh, um, actively communicated by the um, the agency in a way that uh, um, you know uh, providers or potential uh, patients should uh, um, should think about and uh, um, you know whether that's for the best or or not kind of uh, depends on your perspective I guess but it is an interesting approach for a uh, a public health agency just for going to not be uh, talking about these issues really yeah and it's a, especially with the depression thing I mean again we're talking about like really really tiny numbers compared to you know the number of vac- of shots that were given but yeah it's a it's interesting because if you say if you come out and start saying like hey we saw this then you know like like you said sarah you're going to get you know a a substantial reaction to you know whether that's you know why am i taking this vaccine if this could happen or you know maybe that's why i'm you know this is happening or that's happening and so forth but then if you don't say anything then people you know providers don't know to kind of look for it so you know it's a yeah it's a it's an it's an it's a it's a really difficult difficult uh, you know situation that the agency's in and and they've admitted that they're in it and it seems like there's lots and lots of communications experts out there that have been working for the last two years trying to figure out what to do. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Bridget Silverman, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 